Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is from our The Time Is Now series, which walks through the book of Nehemiah. We hope this message will be an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. Well, Nehemiah chapter 1. How many of you have read through the book of Nehemiah? Raise your hand. All right, good. A lot of folks read through Nehemiah. Uh, I love the book of Nehemiah. I heard a friend preach on uh, a passage out of Nehemiah back in August of 2018, and I thought, I want to do a series in the book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to do it right around the time that we can uh, get property and build. And so uh, I began planning it in August of 2018, and that didn't happen in 2018, getting land, and didn't happen in 2019, and it didn't happen in 2020. But here we are in 2021. I kind of hit a point in 2020. I was like, all right, next year I'm doing it regardless. And I planned it out. And of course, we closed on our property, and there's a lot of uh, correlations we're going to see here. Uh, But before we get into this book, I just have to let you in on some of our um, family secrets. (coughs) So you all don't need to be nervous. They need to be nervous. Family secrets, um, growing up, our family was, uh, was, was late to just about everything. Our family was, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating to say we were late to just about everything. Usually, usually it was one of three people's fault. One of three people. One would be my dad. The other two would be my sisters. And here's why. It's because all three of them were obsessed with their hair. All three of them. Now, I don't, I don't mean to be, I, I don't mean to be degrading in my next comment, okay? But my sisters and I often joked with my dad that one of the reasons my, that my dad, that God allowed my dad to have cancer was because he was so vain with his hair growing up. I know that's morbid, that's horrible, I know. But when he first got cancer and we were like, so wait, you're like gonna have to shave your head? That, that's what's gonna happen. And his response was, I know. I know. It was so bad with my dad growing up that, I, Leo, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating to say, if you walked up and as a little kid, I mean, just a little kid, walk up and put my, hat, my hand on my dad's hair, he would go. Don't, don't, don't touch my hair. Okay. So that's why we were laid everywhere, man. There was, we went through hair, we should have invested in hairspray. Why didn't we invest in hairspray? I mean, many of you, you know of of people who grew up in the 80s. So my dad's hair was always covered in a half a can of hairspray. And then my sisters, they both used one can every day because it was the 80s. What'd you do in the 80s? And it just, it honestly looked like you stuck a finger in a socket, zapped your hair, went Like, that was my sister's. And so because of that, we would be late all the time. Well, when I got married, I was still in that habit of me being late to places. But about our first or second year of marriage, I honestly, I got so frustrated at it. I was always like, we are not going to be late. We are just not going to, we're not going to do it. And I still, I think everyone struggles with it every now and then being late somewhere. But man, as much as is in me now, I hate being late. I can't stand it. Now the staff is like, Pastor, you do things late all the time. I know, but I hate it. 
You know what, with family, sometimes there comes a point with, uh, I know my brother-in-law, Jim, I'm glad to have Carly, my oldest niece right here, and uh, Carly's over here. Her dad, she'll tell you that Jim hit a point with my sister, with Dawn, that he would just leave. There'd be plenty of times he'd be like, hey, I'm ready, we're leaving at 9 a.m., and if it was 9.01, he was gone. And she'd be like, where are you? He'd be like, I told you, I was leaving at 9. I left. And you know what? There, there hits a point where we say it's time to go. There hits a point where maybe it's in your life, you know, someone's running late, it's time to go. Have you ever been running late for something and you know if we don't leave right now, we are gonna, we're missing that plane. If we don't leave right now, we're gonna be late for this appointment and we've already scheduled it three times, we can't do it. Listen, the time to go is now. When I come to the book of Nehemiah, I see Nehemiah with that approach to what is taking place that we're going to see. You see, Nehemiah hears about some things taking place in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah's thought is not, well, let's go ahead and wait for a little bit. Let's go ahead and kind of see what happens. Hey, let's take our time. His thought is not, hey, I've got to do some more hairspray. His thought is the time to go is now. It's now. I want you to see as we open up what we're talking about this morning. And so take your Bible, if you would. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter number one. Excuse me, Nehemiah chapter number one. And let's stand and let's read the first four verses. Nehemiah chapter one. And we're just gonna read the first four verses. Nehemiah chapter one, and it says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, or Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and in reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Nehemiah writes, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. I'll stop there. I titled the message this morning, Get Off the Bench. Get off the bench. If you've ever played sports, then you know what it's like to be watching a game and be sitting on the bench. Even if you were a starter, there were times when you were sitting on the bench. And I don't know about, don't know about you, but in my case, I wasn't necessarily the best player at, at any of the sports I played, but I enjoyed playing. And I always had the thought, I think I could help. I think I could help. And I was one that had the attitude of coach put me in. Like, coach, put me in. Remember, I was in fifth grade. I recognize you're still standing. I'm allowing you to stretch before we pray. I was in fifth grade. My mom, she got upset with one of the coaches I had because he always played the same kids no matter what. Then, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, you just kind of play everybody, even if you win or lose. And there was one day she kind of had had it, you know. And she wasn't mean to him, but she walked across. She's like, listen, 
You got like 14 kids sitting on the bench. You play the same five. You need to put these other kids in. They could help you. You don't know. And she kind of, I don't know what you said because I was off to the distance, but it looked very kind. <laughs> and she said these things. And, and you know what? Pretty soon after a, another couple of games, the coach started begin playing some other people. But you know what our spirit was? Those of us that were sitting on the bench, it was coach put us in. Coach, I'm, I'm tired of watching. I want to get off the bench. I'm tired of watching everybody else do something. I want to get off the bench. This morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah and find Nehemiah's get off the bench moment. His time when he realized the time to do something is now. I've got to get off the bench. And I hope before, we're, I hope before we leave this morning that we're all challenged with this spirit of God, put me in. God, I want to get off the bench. Lord, I want to come before you and I pray that you'd help us this morning. I pray that as we go through the word of God, I want to ask you that you would help us to understand your word. I want to pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear from you, to learn from you, that we would uh, discover what you have for us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would have freedom to work in every one of us. And Lord, that as we go through the service and the message this morning, that you would truly just help us to hear exactly what you have for us. Now, before I close my prayer, why don't you take a minute in the quietness of your own heart, why don't you ask the Lord to speak to you? Dear Lord, again, thank you for the day. Thank you for this time. We love you. I pray that you'd work in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You go ahead and be seated. As we come to the book of Nehemiah, I recognize that not everybody in here maybe has a, has a, a working knowledge of where the book of Nehemiah takes place in Scripture. It's interesting because in the, uh, the order that the books of the Bible are in, that is not the order that they were written in. Oftentimes, we kind of think that. We think, well, Genesis must have been the very first book written, uh, when in actuality, it wasn't the first book written. Uh, probably Job would have been the very first, first book written. And then we might read all the way through the Old Testament and discover the latter books, those they're called minor prophets, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We would look at those and say, okay, those took place at the end of the Old Testament period. But actually, the book of Nehemiah would be one of the very last books in the chronological order of the Old Testament books. It would be correspondent with the book Malachi. Those two would kind of go go hand in hand, overlap a little bit. Nehemiah, being one of those last books, um, just kind of give you the history of Nehemiah before we jump into the message. At the time of Nehemiah, Israel is no longer a nation. While there are people living in the land of Israel, it's not really a nation. If you went back and studied out their history, you would see their digression. Now, we won't take long to do this, but I want to rewind a a few hundred years, a few hundreds of years to a man by the name of David. David was one of the kings, the second king of the nation of Israel. David ruled. God blessed him and used him in a great way. And then his son began to reign, Solomon. Solomon began to reign. Solomon was a very wise man. He was one, the Bible says, was probably the wisest man uh, to have ever lived because God blessed him with that wisdom. Right after Solomon, his son would begin to reign. Now his son, Rehoboam, would begin to reign. And when Rehoboam took the throne, there was another man. His name was Jeroboam. 
Jeroboam came to Rehoboam and said, Rehoboam, your, your father was very hard on us for years. Would you go a little easier on us? And Rehoboam said, let me take counsel. And he took counsel of the old men, the older people. They said, the ones who had been with his dad said, hey, maybe you should listen to him. And maybe you should uh, just lighten up and, and allow the people to uh, move forward just with your leadership instead of driving them. And And then Rehoboam went to the younger counselors that he had. And the younger counselors said, no, no, don't lighten up. Show your force. Show them that you are going to be stronger, that your pinky finger is going to be uh, more powerful than your dad's thighs is what the illustration is. That your dad, he, he, you know, got after people and what you do is going to be way worse if they, if they disobeyed, if they go against you. So Rehoboam goes back and tells the people this. Because of this, then Jeroboam and Rehoboam have a a split and a, a partial war. Jeroboam would become the king over the 10 northern tribes. Rehoboam would become the king of the two southern tribes. The two tribes would be Benjamin and Judah. So now the kingdom of Israel is split into two. You have Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Both of them still Hebrew people, but now because of this, uh, this civil war and because of this dispute, they have divided up into two. Well, the northern kingdom, for 250 years, the northern kingdom never had a good king. They never had a king that followed the Lord, never had a king that put God first, never had a king that led the people to worship God or anything, the northern kingdom. And so after 250 years, after message after message and prophet after prophet and chance after chance and and, uh, mercy after mercy, after 250 years, God finally said, I'm going to allow you to be overthrown. They had rejected God for so long that God finally said, okay, have it your way. I'll, I'll I'll let you be on your own. And so the Assyrians came in. The Assyrians came in and they conquered Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, during this time, during those 250 years, the southern kingdom of Israel wasn't much better, but the southern kingdom did have a few kings that came in and periodically brought the people back to God. And they would lead the people in a, in a way that would, that would seek God. And they would lead the people in a way that would repent and, and desire God's will in their life again. And so, Those 250 years passed, Assyria comes in, attacks the northern kingdom, annihilates them. The southern kingdom is still there. Assyria moves in to the southern kingdom to begin to attack, and it's just two tribes. It should be easy to overrun. They should have uh, less people and smaller cities and and, uh, smaller armies, but what you find is that Judah, the southern kingdom, they fend off the Assyrians. And as a matter of fact, they defeat the Assyrians, and you can go and read it in 2 Kings chapter 18, 19, and 20, that they defeat the Assyrians, and the reason is because God fought for them. Here's why. Because they had been seeking God. A king had come on the scene, a man by the name of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was one that he had uh, led them to have a repentant heart and to turn back to the Lord, and under him, the people repented, they began to seek God again, and God saved them, and so Judah maintained its status as a nation. Well, Hezekiah died. 
Then his godless son began to reign. Who was his son? His son was Manasseh. Now, I hope you're taking notes because next week we're having a test and a quiz. (laughs) Hezekiah's son, his name was Manasseh. Now, Manasseh, he came in and he actually undid all of the good that his father had accomplished. Manasseh was a wicked king and Manasseh, uh, because of his reign for 55 years, he literally plunged the kingdom into idolatry and to become a disgrace and really unrecognizable as the people of God. Well, a couple more generations would pass and a young boy would become king. His name was Josiah. Josiah would come on as an eight-year-old king. The Bible tells us that when Josiah was 16, Josiah experienced revival in his own heart. And he turned towards God. And so he uh, did a number of things to try to revive the people and point them back to God. But the people didn't really follow. Josiah had a, a revival and even a couple kings after him, but the people never really followed. From Manasseh on, the people really just got worse and further and further and further away from God. So, Even though God had sent prophets like Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Zephaniah preaching to them, the people always pushed them away and turned their back on God. So it finally hit a point where God allowed the world power at the time, which would have been the Babylonians. In 606 BC, he allowed them to come in and to destroy Judah So now Israel's no longer a nation, Judah's no longer a nation, and people are taken into captivity. There would be some boys that would be taken into captivity during that time. You would know them as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They got taken at that time. Well, a few years later, uh, 597 BC, the Babylonians would come back in and take another group In 586, the third invasion would come in and they would totally destroy the city where the scripture actually teaches that there wasn't a stone left on another stone. Solomon's great temple would be broken down and Jeremiah would write the book of Lamentations looking at the destroyed city of Jerusalem. And you say, Pastor Dennis, why do we need to know all of that? Because all of that matters for what we're gonna find in Nehemiah. Because if we don't know about a little bit of the background, then the context of Nehemiah won't make a lot of sense. Israel goes into captivity for 70 years. The Babylonians fall to the Media Persian Empire. The Media Persian Empire at the time of Nehemiah and the time of Ezra, (coughs) excuse me, have a king that, a leader who is more open to Israel being a nation again. And so Ezra comes on the scene. There was a, someone right around the same time as Ezra, probably maybe a little bit before Ezra. Her name was Esther. You might remember her. That took place probably before Ezra. Well, Ezra comes on the scene and he says, hey, I wanna go back to Jerusalem and I wanna help them experience revival and, and help rebuild some things there. And so Ezra goes back to Jerusalem. A few years after Ezra, you come to the book of Nehemiah. Here it is, God's people haven't had a place. God's people, they haven't had a a nation to call their own. God's people, they haven't been following the Lord. Many of them, when they were given the opportunity to leave the land of bondage, they didn't. They stayed there. They said, no, we don't want to, and only 50,000 would go back the first exodus. 
Only 50,000. That's amazing because they found comfort in Babylon. They knew that God had more for them, and yet they found comfort in the world they were in. That reminds me of a lot of Christians today. You know, a lot of Christians don't move forward in their faith because we find comfort in just the status we're in. We find comfort in the life we're in. Well, as you come to the book of Nehemiah then, we know all of the context, everything that's taken place. Now their Israelites are free to go back to Jerusalem. As we come to the book of Nehemiah, I want you to notice this morning just a a few thoughts with me. First off, I see an individual who's interested. I see an individual who's interested. Well, who's the individual that's interested? Nehemiah. Nehemiah is interested. Notice verse one and two. It says the son of, it says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month Chislu. In the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, or Susa, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Here we are, Nehemiah says that it came to pass in the month Chislu, the month of December, late November, early December, that he, in the 20th year, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that Nehemiah is living in Shushan, Susa. You would recognize it from Esther. This would be a place that would be uh, about 850 miles to the east of Jerusalem. It would be a modern day Iran, just above the Persian Gulf is where Susa would be. We later find that the reason Nehemiah is in Shushan or Susa is because he's the king's cupbearer. Now, the king's cupbearer, listen, this was a very high position. This wasn't something that they just let anybody do. This was something that you had to have some respect, and you had to be uh, understood that you had loyalty to the king, and there was a lot of things that would be in this job of being the king's cupbearer. is a very important and a very trusted position. Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer living in Susa. He's responsible for tasting all of the king's food and, and eating, all of the king's, or eating all of the king's food and tasting all of his drinks. And uh, he would be very close to the king on a regular basis. He would live in the palace, no doubt, in a very comfortable place. We could assume from the passage that Nehemiah had a very comfortable life. He had a very cushy life and existence, we would say. Well, we read that Hanani, one of his brothers, took a journey. Hanani went from Shushan to Jerusalem and then back to Shushan. Well, when he comes back that 850 miles, Nehemiah, he he could have been consumed with himself. He had a cush job. He had a, a good place to live. But instead, we find him saying that This is him writing that he asked, I asked them, how are things going? Hey, how are things with the Jews? How are things going in Jerusalem? What is going on in their lives? And I find it interesting that even though Nehemiah's life was taken care of, he was interested in people that were 850 miles away. He was interested in people that he really, many of them had never met. He was interested in a place that he had never lived He was interested in something that he had only heard about. And even though his life is taken care of, his his interest is still in the people of God. His interest is still in people whose, in his sight, their their lives 
in his mind, excuse me, in his mind, their lives mattered. You know what I find from the book of Nehemiah? I find that Nehemiah cared about people. Nehemiah cared about people. A lot of people, if you've read the book of Nehemiah, you think Nehemiah is about a wall. You know, the book of Nehemiah is about a wall because Nehemiah is going to go and we're going to see that he's going to lead people to build a wall and do something great. But can I help us understand that the book of Nehemiah is not about a wall. The book of Nehemiah is about people. And Nehemiah, he cared about people. You want to know what our problem is? Is that often we only care about our story. Often we don't care about people. We remain disinterested in the lives of others. We, we become interested in, we're interested in the score of the game and we're interested in the weather and we're interested in, in our schedule and in politics and in news and we're interested in, in all sorts of things. And oftentimes nothing is wrong with being interested in those things, but where has our desire gone and our interest in, in the lives of, of people? See, Nehemiah never lived in Jerusalem, yet he wanted to know what's going on with the people of Jerusalem. You and I, we ask people how we're doing, only hoping that they really won't respond. We ask people how they're doing because it's a social nicety in our day and age to just say, hey, how you doing? And they're supposed to say, I'm doing great. And then we say, well, that's good, me too. And then we have what my wife loves, small talk. Hannah and I joke all the time because uh, her family, they're not small talk people. If you ever get around the Perkins, like when we get together, it's not like, hey, how you doing? How's things going? It's like the conversation is on. What do you think about this thing going on? What do you think about this? What's, what's your opinion on this? What do you think? And then, and then it always comes back around to church planting, which I love uh, talking about. But man, small talk just isn't really a big interest. You know what? Most of us, that's all we're consumed with. Small talk, why? Because we don't care. And when we, listen, when we do care, we care about getting the conversation around to how we're doing. We ask how you're doing so that hopefully they'll ask, ask us how we're doing and we can tell our story. That's not what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah wasn't like, hey, how are they doing there? Hoping that they would say, say how have things been here? And Nehemiah could say, oh man, I almost died last week. I tried some food, made me really sick. You know, Nehemiah wasn't interested in his own story. He was interested in the story of others. I wonder this week, whose life are you gonna cross that needs you to be interested in their story? Whose path are you gonna cross that needs you to, to show some concern for where they're at? Not, not where you're at, but where they're at. I see Nehemiah this morning. He's an individual who became interested. He was genuinely interested in the lives of others. He cared about Jerusalem, but he cared more, more about the people that were in Jerusalem. So there's this interest from Nehemiah, but I want you to see, secondly, an interest that becomes a burden. An interest that becomes a burden. Notice what Hanani says, verse number three. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it says, and it came to pass that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I sat down and wept. 
This interest became a burden. The report that Hananiah had given about Nehemiah and the fact that everybody is suffering. And that, that report that Nehemiah received from Hananiah, man, it caused a burden in his heart. What what would the brother say? Well, he said the people are in a great affliction. What's this mean? It means they're in a heavy distress and suffering. Heavy distress and suffering. This is a great time where they're exceedingly miserable. That's what the phrase means. They're exceedingly miserable. And they're also suffering reproach. The word reproach, it means continually shamed. They're continually being put down or treated poorly. These that are supposed to be worshiping the one true God, these who are uh, working to rebuild the temple and rebuild their city, these that are bearing the name of God, they are in affliction and they are in reproach. And can I just tell you, Nehemiah understood when the people of God are in reproach, it it reflects poorly upon their God. There's many trials that the people are facing that they continually are being shamed and being poorly treated by others. And Hanani goes on to describe not only that, but they're being shamed and they're being poorly treated because the walls are broken down. The wall is broken down and the gates, they are, they are in ruins. Can I tell you this morning that if a wall is broken down and gates are in ruins, uh, that city is totally vulnerable. In Bible days, if, if a wall was broken down and the, the gates were in ruins, it meant that anybody could come in and it was a disgrace and it made, really the city was completely ineffective because it was not a defense for the people. Nehemiah, he hears about the people and their lack of defense and the city walls being broken down and the, the gates in ruin and what happens? He's overwhelmed with emotion. Later, we're going to discover that Nehemiah was not just an emotional person. In chapter number two, next week, we'll see that he had actually not even shown emotions in the presence of the king. So he wasn't just an emotional person. No, this is Nehemiah experiencing something on the inside. Why? He heard the state of the people, and it caused him to have a great, great burden. I love the heart and the openness of Nehemiah. He displays a great love for people that he has never met and his interest in people turns into a burden for those people and he shows great concern for his God, the people who the people represent and he has a a great empathy here and after hearing about what's going on, his interest becomes that emotion, that strong burden. Can I ask you, when's the last time that we got burdened for something outside of ourselves? I wonder when's the last time that we had a heart for what others were going through. We, not only are are we not interested in other people, but all too often the burden that we experience in our life is never really there. We We can hear about things going on and yet we just think, well, that's too bad. That doesn't really involve me. That's too bad. Nehemiah, he had an interest. That interest became a burden, but I see that burden provoked a seeking. A burden provokes a seeking. What takes place in verse number four, it says, Nehemiah, he said that he wept and mourned certain days. He fasted, and then it reads, and he prayed before the God of heaven. He prayed before the God of heaven. 
When Nehemiah hears these words and he's heavily burdened, he decides to seek God over the issue. He weeps and he mourns. That's an extended period of lamenting and and he fasted. And you know what? His burden activated him spiritually. He said, I'm not only interested and and now I'm experiencing a burden, but man, God, God, we need you in this. His burden provoked a, a seeking. And while we don't have time to cover it in depth, you can look at Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 through 10. In verse 5, Nehemiah recognizes who the Lord is, a little bit of worship. In verse number 6, he's basically saying, Lord, hear me and see me and know that I'm not praying this for myself. I'm, I'm praying it for others. And in verse number 7, he takes personal responsibility uh, he says, God, we felt very, very offensively and destructively. Hey, God, the people of Israel have forsaken you. I love his personal responsibility there because he doesn't just dismiss Israel's heritage. You see, Israel had had a history of, and we've covered this before, they've had that history of that cyclical relationship. Here's the relationship. Follow God, love God, don't follow God leave God, repent, follow God, love God, don't follow God, leave God, repent, like they just cyclical. You know what Nehemiah could have done? He could have prayed, God, our forefathers were idiots. (laughs) He could have prayed, God, they let, but you know what he does? He takes personal responsibility in verse number seven. He says, God, we, God, we, he understood, listen, I am just as much a play of this as anybody else because there are times in my life when I don't walk with God. In verse eight through 10, he claims the promises of God saying, Lord, you promised some things. You promised that when we sin, you'll scatter us and that has taken place. But God, you also promised that when we repent and turn back to you, that you will gather us and work through us again. And that is taking place. In verse number 10, he's basically saying, Lord, Jerusalem is filled with your people and they bear your name. They've been redeemed and empowered by you. And God, I am not praying this prayer for personal gain, but God, I am praying because your name and your people are at risk. But in all of this, Nehemiah had a burden that caused him to seek the hand of the Lord. His spirit was not, I gotta do something right away. His spirit was, I need God's help Can I say Nehemiah's first response when he heard was, I need God. What a great strategy. What a great strategy for when we face situations and burdens that are overwhelming. We have the strategy often of, I've got this. I can handle it. Okay, all right. Self-talk, self-motivation, self-love, all that. We have have this whole thing that's about me. I I can do this. And I'm, I'm all for us understanding that sometimes we need to kind of motivate ourselves out of, a, out of a, a discouraging moment. But you know what Nehemiah's first response was? I gotta pray. Man, I need God. I wonder, what's your first response in the mornings? Is it, well, I better get up and get myself, I gotta, gotta get that cup of coffee. If I don't get a cup of coffee, man, I'm, I'm, I'm of no good the whole day. Or is it, God, I need you today. Lord, before my feet touch the ground, God, I recognize that I need you. Nehemiah had a burden and that burden provoked a seeking. It provoked him to to seek the Lord. 
many of you are like me, and this is not our first response. Our first response when we maybe see something that needs to happen, my first response often is, how can I solve it? How can I solve it? How many of you wives say to your husband, I don't want you to solve anything right here. I want you to just listen to me. Nehemiah was, his response was, I'm gonna solve it. His response was, God, here's a situation. Lord, what do you want? I see an interest that provoked a burden, a burden that brought about a seeking. It caused him to seek the Lord, but I see lastly today, seeking that leads to action. A seeking that leads to action. Notice, if you will, Nehemiah chapter one and verse number 11. This is the closing of the prayer that Nehemiah is praising, praying to the Lord. He says this, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. And here's his prayer request. I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. What's he praying? Here's Nehemiah, verse number 11. He's saying, God, would you hear my prayer? And Lord, I want to do something about this. I want to do something about the city walls being broken down. But more than that, God, I want to do something about the people who live there. I want to help them. God, they represent you. God, I'm about to stand in. And so God, here's what I'm asking. Grant me mercy in the sight of the king. God, I'm about to go into the king. Give me his favor. But God, above that, give me your favor. He saw a situation, and you know what Nehemiah said? He didn't say, well, somebody needed to do something about that. That's what we often say. You know, I fear that if I'm the king's cupbearer, if I'm Nehemiah in this situation, Hananiah comes and tells me, they go, man, that's a bummer. When are you going back to do, when are you going back to do something? You gonna go back and help him? That wasn't Nehemiah's response. Nehemiah's response was like Isaiah's response when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. Nehemiah's response is a response of surrender. His response was a response response of action. Lord, I want you to do something and if you'll do something through me, I'm willing He says, God, give me grace in the sight of the king so that I can step out and accomplish something for you. And can I say today that a burden that doesn't activate you is meaningless. A burden that doesn't activate you, it's meaningless. And even though he really didn't know what he was getting himself into, even though, (coughs) excuse me, Nehemiah didn't know what he was facing, even though he knew there would be challenges Listen, the people are in great affliction and reproach. He knows if he goes there, he's probably gonna be facing some of that too. And there's a a strenuous task in front of him, but his burden for people caused him to seek his God. And after he sought his God, he thought, you know what? Somebody needs to do something and that somebody may very well be me. It was his time. It was Nehemiah's time to get off the bench. Listen, something must be done. Give me a chance. Prosper, I pray thee. God, I'm gonna go talk to the king. Would you please be in this? 
I see this morning that Nehemiah had an interest in the people of these, in the lives of these people. And when he found out where they were, he became burdened for them. And that burden caused him to seek God. And then that uh, seeking provoked him to action. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to see what happened in Nehemiah's life. But today I want to simply say a, a very simple thought. We need more Nehemiahs in the Christian life. Say, Pastor Dennis, what do you mean by that? We need more Nehemiahs. We're going to see that God will go on to use Nehemiah in a very powerful way. Not because, listen, not because of who Nehemiah was, but because Nehemiah was surrendered. We need more people who are interested because we've lost interest. Many Christians, we get so caught up in our lives that we miss the needs of others. We miss the fact that people need Jesus Christ in our world. We miss the fact that people need encouragement and people need hope that only Jesus can bring. And we get so caught up in our daily lives that we lose interest in the lives of others. And can I say it this morning that so often we just kind of go through our schedules and we forget that life is made up of people, not schedules and tasks. And I, I would not, I'm not thinking of anyone in here specifically about what I'm, what, with what I'm about to tell you, but it's been on my mind this week. We lose sight of this on social media. I'm gonna talk about it just for a second, but social media, can I just tell you right now that your goal in social media should not be to win some sort of debate about our politics. It should, not be able, it should not be about saying, well, this is where I stand on this issue and I'm better than you because. No, my, my goal on social media should be to exalt Jesus Christ. And you want to know, oh, I'm, oh, help me. I want to help us with something this morning. You want to know why we are seeing teenagers just walk off the cliff? It's because adults don't teach them how to use social media. It's because moms and dads don't realize that social media impacts people. This week, I heard a 14-year-old committing suicide. Last week, a 12-year-old that committed suicide. You want to know why? The influence of social media. And yet we have Christians that get so caught up in ourselves. Oh, my goodness. This is firing me up a little bit because it just... Ah! We get, we, get so, we get so inundated with us and what we want that we lose sight that there are people that are going to spend eternity somewhere. Listen, my friend, when is the last time that you stepped outside of you and got interested in somebody else around you? Man, be interested in the people that are reading what you post. Be interested in exalting Jesus Christ. I'm not saying don't post pictures of your family and funny things. Man, go to our Facebook. We post funny things all the time. And I'm not against that. I'm just saying there should be at a base of it of, God, I want to glorify you in this. Lord, help me not to post anything or say anything or blog anything or tweet anything or Snapchat anything or TikTok anything or Instagram anything or whatever else there is, Weeble and all that stuff, Parlor. Well, it got taken down, but there's all this other stuff out there. Listen, you know what you can do? You can say, God, I'm interested in people and don't lose interest in people. Man, don't lose sight of it. We need more Nehemiahs who just quit being interested in themselves and start being interested in the lives of others. Start being interested in your unsaved family that, that's watching you. 
Start being interested in that coworker that, man, that coworker that they don't know where they're gonna spend eternity and they're, they're watching you and they're wondering, are they for real? And start, start being interested in that. We've lost interest. We don't become burdened. When we hear about things, we don't allow ourselves to become burdened. We hear about needs of people and we, we don't allow ourselves to, to really experience empathy for them. We're so blinded by our own stuff that we don't, we don't care. We become callous towards the needs of others. We become desensitized to the fact that people are hurting and without the Lord and they need hope and you have Jesus and he is hope. He's the only hope that they could ever get. Understand that our burden, your burden should be about people. I was so convicted this week. On Friday, Lena, Lena and I went on a date and I tried to take the kids out and spend time with them. And Lena and I went on a date Friday. And you ready? We ate at a really fancy restaurant. It's called Taco Bell. <laughs> we were just talking. Where do you want to go? And we just settled. Ah, Taco Bell sounds good. It's good every day. So we got Taco Bell and we went and, and uh, we sat in the truck at the new property. And we just sat there and talked and hung out. You know, you can't eat in anywhere. There are a couple places in town you can't. I'll tell you afterwards, I don't want to say it online, but we, uh, we sat down in the truck and we, we just started talking. And as we were sitting there, I became convicted because Lena said, dad, this is so cool. And here we are, my 13 year old, she says, dad, think about this, think about this. Isn't this a great spot for our church? People are gonna see it. And she went, dad, look how close we are to the apartments. She's like, dad, people could like walk here. She's like, Dad, they could just like walk right around and come right over to church. And, she's, and she goes, and then even more than that, Dad, think about how many people are going to see our church and come to our church. And Dad, think about how many people could get saved at our church because of a new location. And man, here I am sitting there thinking, God, give us the money for the building. God, would you? And my 13-year-old daughter reminds me, it's about people. You want to know why we're building a new building? People. You want to know why we're going to raise money and build a new building? People. Why? Because they matter. Man, we've lost interest. We don't become burdened. We fail to seek God. Our first response is not seeking him. And the last thing, we lack action. <laughs> we lack action. All too often in our lives, many times we know that People are hurting. We know that stuff is going on, but we don't take action. We don't care enough about people to try and find a way to be used in their lives. And I just want to encourage you with a thought for this week. Will you be surrendered to be a Nehemiah? Say, Pastor Dennis, what's that mean? Look and be interested in other people. Ask God to help you with a burden. Seek God with what to do about it. And then take steps to follow him by faith. And what a great, what a great character Nehemiah was. His get off the bench moment. Man, I'm interested. I could do something. God put me in. Okay, I'm going in the game. I wonder what your Nehemiah moment's gonna be this week. Who's God gonna bring across your path? That, and they're hurting, they're hopeless, they're helpless, 
and they don't know it, but you have an incredible answer in a resource of Jesus Christ that you can offer to them. Let's be a Nehemiah this week. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, we'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.church.